Radio. I just had this brainstorm for us. Can you guess what it is? No. Bowling. What do you say? Bowling? Huh? I don't think so, George. You get no rush from bowling. I'm thinking rock climbing. All right, rock climbing! Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 51. A conversation with alpinist and climate activist Molly Kabahata. This is your host, Peter Horgan. Molly's name has been making its way around the climbing world a lot as of recent, since the release of the Patagonia film, The Scale of Hope. Molly stars in this film as the central figure, and it creatively weaves together several threads of climbing, climate, and mental health to tell her story. I got to meet Molly and the production team back in 2021 in Uray, Colorado, while they were there making the film. And it didn't take very long after meeting her to see that when it comes down to talking about climate action, Molly speaks with confidence and conviction. And Molly's message about climate change and climate action may be seen as a bit different. But this is because it dates back to her time that she spent at the White House working as a climate advisor during the Obama administration. And it was there that she had the aha moment when she realized that the way that we have traditionally communicated about climate change just simply wasn't working. The doom and gloom messaging was just scaring people and something else was needed to make it more relatable to the everyday person. The notion of taking personal action to green your life is great and all, and she commends that, but it's just not realistic for everyone to do that. And that's what's not making it relatable. It's through reframing of the traditional messaging to make it more about being a public health matter, rather than using that doom and gloom narrative about things that are happening thousands of miles away from someone, right? Molly thinks that this is the path to systemic change. Acting on climate will not only benefit us as climbers, but will also help address the health and wellness of other demographics that have been historically underserved, and that's what Molly is so passionate about. Before we get into it here, I want to say that the conversation I had with Molly was not necessarily about climbing. It was about a climber that's working tirelessly to see this, this systemic change and continue to make messaging around climate action reach more people in a more relatable way. That's the key part, in a more relatable way. It was such a pleasure to chat with Molly and get to learn more about her approach to communicating about climate because I think she's really onto something here. And if you haven't seen Scale of Hope yet, please do yourself a favor and take an hour to go watch it. I won't even be mad if you hit the pause button on the episode right now and go watch it first. So let's get into it here. Please enjoy my conversation with alpinist and climate pro, Molly Kawahata. Before we get into the episode, I want to give thanks and show some love for the supporters and sponsors of the show. Black Diamond, Adidas Turex, Gnarly Nutrition, Mammut, Alpine Start Coffee, and Plutone Audio. Thank you all for the continued support of the Climbing Advocate podcast and dedication to our climbing community. All right. Well, here we are again. It's really good to chat again. And I'm grateful for you sitting down again to, uh, to record another episode. Oh, absolutely. I love yeah. doing these with you. <laughs> we had the pleasure of, I say again, because we had the pleasure of meeting a couple of years ago in 2021 down in Uray, Colorado, while you were there filming your movie, uh, Scale of Hope. So we didn't get to publish that first conversation for you know a number of reasons, but so glad we're circling up here again to, so I can hear some more about what's going on with you and um, over the past couple of years and now talk talk to you a post-release of Scale of Hope. So what's going on? What's new? 
Yeah, no, it's it's actually wild to think that that was two years ago. That kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it was my first time in Uray. So um, still based in Bozeman, still ice climbing. And now that that film has come out, it's it's been kind of a wild, unexpected experience feeling like the an accidental subject in a documentary. <laughs> so it's been interesting kind of adjusting to that. Have you gotten calls from uh, the late night talk show hosts yet? <laughs> Just you. Just me. <laughs> I mean, right. it, is, it is quite a few more speaking engagements, which is fun to, you know, be able to spread this message to a wider platform than I had before. Um, so that has definitely been a fun experience, but also, you know, something I'm still adjusting to. Who's that been with like uh, universities or businesses? Yeah. Universities, companies. We, I spoke at, uh, Harvard, at um, at Google, at Square, I guess they're now Block, um, nonprofits. So it's like been really interesting to kind of be able to speak to a wider array of audiences who have very different interests and objectives, but all care about climate and mental health, which is now a big part of my advocacy as well, which wasn't before now that I've shared my story of living with bipolar disorder. Oh, totally. We'll definitely get into that here today and how that film kind of wove, wove all that stuff together, climbing and climate and mental health and all that good stuff. Is I rewatched it uh, last week again just to kind of get you know primed for for us talking today. And God, it was it's so good. It's so good. And if, if anyone listening hasn't seen it yet, like you're 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 blowing it. <laughs> you need to go watch it. And um, yeah, my wife and I watched it, and it's it's excellent, excellent stuff. Oh, that's so kind of you. Yeah, the Patagonia team spent a lot of time on that. It was definitely one of their uh, big, like, very big project um, for that film, which was almost a two-year, year-and-a-half process of filming and, um, you know, really involved camera crew and team. And, um, yeah, it's it's been kind of crazy to see that on YouTube. It has now over a million views, which I honestly thought, like, maybe a few people would watch it. I was kind of like, who cares about my story, you know, like I just, it is, so it blows my mind. It's just been such an unexpected journey, how it's played out. Um, but it's, you know, I really think it's been exciting because I think, um, one of the effects that it's had, which is what we wanted is that people are projecting their own story onto mine and mm. reflecting on their own lives and making it about themselves, which was really the goal in me sharing my story. Cause at the end of the day, I don't really care who knows about my story, but if it can make people think about theirs in a different way, um, that's, you know, a profound honor to get to be a part of that. Yeah, you should be incredibly proud of that, having that kind of impact and influence on other people. I mean, that's kind of the goal at the end of the day to communicate. And and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you read through the the comments on the, on the YouTube, on the movie where it's hosted on YouTube, and I see comments just like that, that everyone can relate to what you're talking about. Most everyone. There's always the trolls that, that you know, <laughs> jump jump in those kind of platforms, of course. You can't avoid that, but like ninety-nine percent of the comments are extremely positive and and relatable to what you're talking about. Yeah, I expected so many more trolls. I, I'm I've been also that's another thing I've been mind blown by is like people are so nice in the DMs they send and mm -hmm. um yeah, it's just it's been just a mind blowing, very different experience than anything I ever expected. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, if you're getting less trolls on this, you're doing something right. Cause you know, <laughs> the, the keyboard confidence is real, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think, I mean, it's a matter of just being like yourself and being able to share the struggle just as much as the good stuff. Cause I think 
you know, I've thought about a lot about how people share their stories since I went through this process of sharing mine. And I was thinking about kind of, there are sort of two ways to do it. One is a way that drives disconnection. Um, and you see this a lot with like, you know, the Instagram influencers that people follow, but they like secretly hate because they just make them feel bad about their lives. And there is something to say for people to share their story, which is really just to make, you know, them look really amazing, but it drives disconnection and making you feel more disconnected from them. And then the other way is to drive connection. And so, you know, that, that was part of the conversations I had with the Patagonia team because I had initially said no to doing this film and um, they pushed and believed there was a story to be told there. And I didn't see it. I didn't feel worthy. I still kind of don't feel worthy of it all. Um, but in that, just that idea of kind of like we were talking about projecting your story onto mine, the more people can do that, the more it can drive connection. And that's the idea. But it required me to dig very deep in sharing, you know, the dark stuff, the hard stuff, the stuff I'm not good at, um, just as much as the highlights and the exciting and beauty in life. Um, the darkness, I think, is just as much a part of it. And so the more we can share that and show that authenticity, I think the more it can drive connection. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. And, and it's coming more and more prevalent. I think it's not all the uh, the mountains and, and the cliffs and the, and the boulders that we like to climb and stuff and all the kind of the sexy things, you know, it's, we're diving into more and more conversations that are harder to talk about, whether it be climate or more, more uh, other social matters. And it's, and more and more, I think athletes are are highlighting that. I mean, would you would you agree? And they're getting away, like not getting away from the awe and shock, but incorporating that and weaving that into their story. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. I've been really heartened to see the way the climbing community has, you know, taken more and more of a stance and gotten more and more involved on issues like climate and started more of a conversation on mental health. Um, and how that relates to so many different things, whether that's depression, whether that's grief, whether that's um, body image. There's so many aspects of um, climbing that's kind of expanding beyond just climbing. And I think that's really important because we're all really multifaceted people. Everyone that makes up the climbing community has so much more to them than just being a climber. And so the more we can bring our full selves into those conversations, I think the more we can cultivate a sense of belonging for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, climbers and athletes, they're, they're just, they're people at the end of the day. And that's like, that's the core of your message, right? I mean, and you, you want to relate to everyone, to, to the common, common man or woman, but yeah, climbers and athletes, they're people at the end of the day who happen to just be really good at something. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what, you know, that's the way I kind of like to perceive this in a way and talking to maybe, you know, professional climbers on the show or, and stuff, just, it's just another human being with the same thoughts and insecurities and, and strengths, weaknesses, whatever. Um, but they're just having to be really good at something. And I like the, yeah. I like seeing um, them use their platform for stuff like this. It's been, it's been good to see. Totally. And I think like you're hitting the nail on the head with like the idea of insecurity being kind of this driving force that everybody can relate to in some way or another. And, you know, for me sharing my story with bipolar two disorder was like, not everybody knows what it's like to live with that. Um, but everybody knows what it's like to struggle. And there's a kind of a universality in that, that we all experience in some way or another pain, suffering, um, imposter syndrome, inadequacy, all of these things that are really hard in life, um, but really bring us together in terms of our universal experience of kind of being human. And that's a really big part of climbing, right? Like suffering and, um, you know, seeking out environments that are really hard and sometimes like treacherous experiences like that can really make you feel like the depth of 
you know, what it is to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> we could take this so many directions right now, but I kind of want to stick with scale hope. I mean, we've been kind of kicked it off with that unintentionally, but I think it was a great way to, to get going here. And, um, you know, like I said, I rewatched it last week to maybe get some new thoughts and ideas for questions for you. And what I ended up coming up with was just like these really impactful and powerful like quotes that you said from it. And I was like, well, oh, got, got to pause it, got to write this down. And I like jot, jot it down real quick. So I'm going to read off a few examples, if you don't mind, and just we'll sure. kind of keep it rolling from there. So the first one is, when we lead with hope, everyone can be a part of it. The second one is, it's not necessarily about fighting climate change to keep climbing and skiing. It's about people back to our point that we just brought up. Right. And the third one is you can't get the public on board until they feel something. Mm-hmm. And I got another one I'll save here uh, as we get into the more of the mental health stuff. But I mean, you're, you're the rock star of the film. You're like, you, you're, you're the protagonist of the film, right? And it's, it shares your story. Like you said, it's got over a million views on YouTube. It's streaming on Delta airlines. Like, come on. <laughs> How awesome is that? Uh, and it's, it, yeah, it's one of Patagonia's most successful films and it's, it's a very different take on climbing and climate. So how did, how did this whole thing come to be? When were you approached by this and how did it all uh, come together for you? Well, so many mentioned those quotes. Cause like when you said that, I was like, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> the entire film is actually unscripted and, and they had me do the narration in a studio, but it's just me like talking. And I sort of went in for eight hours and just like word vomited thoughts about the world. <laughs> and like, I'm really glad they were able to extrapolate things that were helpful. And I think kind of what you, what you just quoted is sort of like the thesis of kind of what I'm working on and what I stand for and what my values are and what so many people have reached out to say they identified with. Um, the themes of hope, insecurity, um, mental health, fighting things, even though they feel impossible, even though they feel hard, which is such a big part of climbing just as much as, you know, social justice issues like climate. Um, So how the film came to be is actually a funny story. Uh, So I had done a podcast with Caroline Gleick. She had just started doing the Caroline Gleick show and she needed guests because it was really early on. And she asked me to do it. And I said, no, she was like, why? And I was like, I say dumb stuff all the time. Like a podcast is the worst format, (laughs) which is funny because this is like one of the main formats in which I talk now. Um, And so she convinced me to do it. And Ultimately, I realized that I didn't think I had anything to say. And I had been asked after I left the White House um, to uh, do a lot of speaking engagements, and I turned down every single one. I was like, I don't know. It's really nice. These people asked me to speak. I have nothing to say. And what's funny is I had thought about the fact that I was still like ranting to friends in their kitchens about problems I saw with the environmental movement, the way we could reframe the narrative, the hope I saw and what was ahead on climate that nobody was really fully crafting into a mainstream narrative for people to grasp onto. And so I, I realized actually maybe I do have something I can share here. And my objective was really when I have these rants with friends and they're like arguing with me about things like the carbon footprint, can I just like send them this podcast? So I don't <laughs> have to go over all these frameworks. And so anyway, so we like went through this process and coincidentally the Patagonia head of films happened to hear it. And they sent me a DM on Instagram and it's funny cause like it goes into a different inbox. And so I didn't even yeah. see it for like months. And finally I get on the phone with them and they say, we want to make a film about climate and albinism. 
And so initially I was just sort of consulting for free and I was just like, cool, don't make a bad one. You know, I've seen so many climate films that are just terrible, like make a good one. And they're like, cool, like, how can we do this differently? Um, So there's so many conversations about that. I was like, here's the problem with the environmental movement. Here's how we can reframe the issue, lead with hope, stop putting stock footage that just scares the shit out of people. It's not effective. We can talk more about why that is. But ultimately, they were kind of interested in how they can do this differently. And and one of the things was like, don't make a film about um, climbers who go see the glacier melting and then come back to everybody else and say, I've seen the glacier melting. We need to act on climate. (laughs) And there is a benefit to, I think, people speaking from their personal experience to that extent. But in terms of films, there are limits in how powerful that is. Because one, I believe scientists are just better at saying that narrative than I am about the glaciers melting. Two, there are limits with how privileged it is and the fact that, you know, a lot of people can't relate to that. Three, the narrative that we need to act, that is established. The narrative that it's urgent, that is an established narrative. The narrative that glaciers are melting, we know this. So I just don't think it's much of a value add to the conversation. And so it said, well, if you're going to put climbing in there, maybe use it as a metaphorical device. Talk about the fact that, you know, when climbers climb things, it feels impossible and they try and do it anyway. That's how it feels for me. You know, like I don't feel a lot of confidence when I go up a mountain. So, you know, as a mediocre climber, uh, that's my experience. And so anyway, through a few conversations, they kept getting me back on the phone and I kept forgetting about doing these conversations. I was still working full time elsewhere. And finally, they have a production company on the phone and the director just starts asking me these really personal questions about my life. He's like, what was your childhood like? And what was it like when you left the White House? What was it like living in D.C.? And I didn't think this was relevant because I thought they were going to do a David Attenborough style narrative (laughs) documentary. And I, I had nothing to do with it. Right. I was just like, cool, make a good one. Um, and at one point I start to realize that perhaps based on the questions they're asking me, they are actually planning on telling my story, but no one had told me that. And so the idea that my story was worthy of being told in a Patagonia documentary was so preposterous to me. I couldn't even bring myself to ask that because imagine if you were like, is the film about me? No, what are you talking about? Exactly. You want to like hide under a rock for the rest of your life. So I couldn't even ask it. And at one point I overheard the director mention to the producer, the film about Molly. And I was like, what? Okay. That is your plan. We need to have a conversation. And everybody had just thought somebody else had told me. So um, I initially said, you know, I, I get what you want to do. I'm not the right person to do it. So I said, no. And I said, you know what, though, I'll help you find the right one. And I sent them a list of subjects that I thought would make, you know, a better film that I thought were much more worthy of their story being told. And Josh, the director, Josh Bonesbervy later told me he didn't even open the email. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And they really pushed and they said, you know, we think there's a story to tell here. And we do think you're worthy, even if you don't. It was very kind and it was, you know, it was an odd experience to go through. But ultimately, I decided, listen, if you're going to tell my story, don't make a film about somebody who has it all figured out because I certainly do not. You know, and and then this other portion came in of me saying a big part of my identity is that I live with bipolar 2 disorder. It's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of my life. 
and actually it's something I'm really proud of. So they decided kind of as they were working on this, that they were going to integrate this third leg of the stool, which was going to be mental health and my experience um, to sort of broaden the audience and make it more relatable in new ways. But it wasn't the initial intention. So they had to rewrite the treatment for the film about Mm -hmm. that. So it became about climate climbing and mental health. Um, and so that's why, the, and they decided like the right way to tell a story about alpinism and climate was through character, um, which is what led them to make that decision. So the film itself, I feel like I'm an accidental protagonist. Like, <laughs> it really wasn't intended to be what it became. And they came out with a very different film than they went in to make. That's that's an amazing story, and that's a very high level of humility you had of going into it. You know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people might jump at it like, "Oh yeah, like Patagonia film, I'll totally just jump in there. I'm going to be plastered all over the internet and and Delta Airlines and things." You know, um, so yeah, taking that hesitation to really think about it and maybe make sure that you were the right person. Um, but it's funny that Josh didn't even open the email. He's like. No, I'm not even considering someone else for this. You, you're you're the person. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, he kept saying the film doesn't exist without Molly, and I think I think he he was getting at something else, which is like the character. Like we need a character driven story, but um, they really did push for the fact that my story was relatable. And there is kind of this increasing narrative in the outdoor industry now that <clears throat> it's less about just showing the best athletes in the world. And it's now more about, um, you know, bringing more folks in, you know, that's a lot of, you know, what Scarpa has done with its mentorship program, what the North Face is doing with its new program. Like it, it is about kind of broadening the audience. And so I'm the, I think I'm the first climbing film about a mediocre climber that they, <laughs> um, and it's, it's really hard to, you know, in the period that they were, this is a couple of years ago now, the period they were filming was when I was learning to ice climb. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to learn to do something on camera. It's embarrassing. Like there's scenes where I'm like, oh God, my swing is just so bad there. And they like caught that on film. And um, there's a scene in which I am leading pretty close to my limit, which obviously you're not supposed to do on ice, but a bunch of circumstances led to this happening. And, um, and so I was climbing scepter in highlight Canyon. I know it's scene you're talking about. Yeah. And so I lose my cramp on it, it comes off and it's hanging from my ankle and, you know, one, because I still struggle with anxiety. I had a panic response. I didn't like think through what to do. I think I, I would have known what to do, but I was just like panicked and Mikey Schaefer was the director of cinematography for high angle cinematography who's an amazing person. I love that guy to death because he just saved my ass so many times, <laughs> but uh, really walked me through, you know, it's fine. Not a big deal. Um, you know, and I just put in a screw, went in direct, clipped the cramp on, put it back on and then finished the route. And, and it's funny now because I don't know why something about the petzl crampons in me, like do not get along. And so like, I've lost my crampon now many times or it's like come off. And it's like now a very common, normal experience for me. It's happened when I was soloing one. Like, it's just like, ah, okay, this is how you deal with it. So it's funny to go through that experience and to look back that you're just like such a learning period. You're so new to something and that's being filmed. It's like really hard, but also it was kind of cool to be able to, you know, I got a lot of messages from people who were like, wow, I never thought I could ice climb. But like now that I see somebody who was like kind of bad at it, but like was willing to be filmed doing it, then, you know, maybe I can do it. So I think there's something to say for how it can bring people in. 
Yeah. I mean, that's like, I know we're, talk, we're not talking about social media specifically right now, but talking about social media, like that's the positive side is, you know, be able to communicate a story like this can encourage people to go try it themselves when they don't think they can. And that's certainly, uh, you know, in the pro um, plus side of, of these kinds of mediums to, to communicate stories. I love it. So you're communicating not only relatable things about climate, but also about your personal climbing. Like that's like the one, two punch right there, right? Like what else could you ask for? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the, the mental health stuff a bit because that is kind of the, the other leg of the stool that was part of the film. And um, as we said, you know, that it's becoming an increasingly important issue and you're really honest and open about it. Um, your bipolar two disorder, which I have not, I honestly have not heard of before. You know, I don't hear the, the number associated with, with the disorder, but if you care to explain like me, you know, what makes this, you know, the two or what makes it different and what was your, just, what was your journey to get to this place? Yeah. No, and I love that you asked that question because, uh, people are often scared to ask about mental health and it's funny, my talks now, it's like somebody will sort of ask about it and they'll see, I'm like shockingly open. And so then everybody asks about mental health. And one thing that's been interesting is like, I'll go into an event planning on talking about climate, um, thinking of it as like a climate event and all the questions around mental health. Wow. And it's made me realize something, which is that people want to talk about this. And, and we need more of a space to do that. And, and the more we can each kind of provide more of a space in which people feel more open and able to talk about this, the more people like take, you know, take you up on that. Um, and, and it's also made me realize something, which is that for us to solve climate change, people have to be okay. And people aren't okay right now. And that's, that's something we like need to address in a very real way and also need to like rally around as like an issue is mental health is something everybody can relate to in some capacity, whether or not it's something they've experienced or struggled with, which the majority of people do statistically, but also knowing somebody who is or, or having some partner or family member or friend who's gone through it. Um, I don't know one climber who hasn't been touched by somebody else in the climbing community that has struggled with mental health. Um, and, you know, you have stories of people who are just like, really having a hard time. So that's something I've been reflecting on is like, we need to actually take a, take a step back and from, from climate to how people are personally in order for us to then address these bigger systemic issues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I love that you asked about this. Uh, there, there's a distinction. There's actually a bipolar spectrum, which a lot of people don't know about. Mm. Um, in fact, I didn't really know about it until I was diagnosed. And so bipolar one is kind of Typically, um, the bipolar that you see on TV or in movies, um, and one of the trademark uh, symptoms of it is mania. And mania is um, typically where you are really high energy to the point where it can often lead to being hospitalized. Um, and, and it can often be considered a psychotic episode. Uh, it's, it's really... Um, detrimental to people's lives uh, who are experiencing it. One thing that's interesting is that bipolar two disorder, it's characterized by what's called hypomania, which is that you don't get full-blown mania. You get high energy and it's too much, but it's not to the point where, you know, you might experience the same level of consequences. In fact, it can sometimes look like somebody who's just like the life of the party. 
who's just super extroverted. So for me, I talk really fast. I like want to like be outside with a lot of people. I'm just very extroverted. Um, and it impacts my sleep. I don't need to sleep much. Um, so, you know, in college and high school, when I, I was very untreated, uh, I would be awake for, for days, um, or just needing very little sleep. And another funny thing is that I, I get obsessed with like specific topics that no one else cares about. Like I was really into the science of sunblock for a period, like a one week period where like, that's all I read about. It's all I wanted to talk about is like what ingredients make sunblock healthier, what's effective UVA versus UVB. I mean, pe- like my friends are so graceful and how like, we're just like, okay, Molly. Uh, but that's what it looks like for me. And so it's also characterized by having a lot more depression, you're low a lot more. And so typically people with bipolar two disorder can often get misdiagnosed with depression. And the problem with that is that some of the treatments for depression, like SSRIs, the medication can actually exacerbate the illness and cause damage. Um, So I was misdiagnosed with depression very young in high school and um, was not able to get adequate treatment because I had a different mental illness. And so I, I lived untreated for about a decade. Uh, and I got diagnosed my second day at the White House, actually, which was horrifying. And um, I had had to let the FBI talk to my therapist and my psychiatrist as part of my security clearance process. And the entire experience was really jarring. And I hit it every day from work. And it's funny because I never hit it in real life. Like I was actually very casual. All my friends knew, but I was very casual about it. Even with tra- strangers I'd meet, they'd sometimes be shocked that I was so casual about having mental illness. But with colleagues, I really hit it. Um, and in retrospect, I don't think I had to. I think they actually would have been incredibly supportive and nice about it. But I was just scared. Um, and it's been a huge journey to come out the other end with treatment, which took years to figure out. But now that I have it, I've seen all of these benefits that have come from living with bipolar disorder and having a brain that's, for me, kind of weird and different. And I do think it's the reason I climb mountains and it's the reason I got to work at the White House was having this illness that was just hard. I was harnessing it to my advantage. Um, so now with treatment, I look back and I'm just like, I don't think I would give this up if I could mm-hmm. without treatment in a second, I would, but with yeah. it, um, it's kind of become just a part of my life. That's incredibly valuable. I still suffer though. It's still not over. You know, I'm never at the other side. It's incurable and lifelong. Well, I was going to say, it's not going to like go away. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's part of it, but it's it's been an interesting journey. At one point, I just looked around at my life and I realized that for all of the best things, I felt I had a mental illness to thank for it. So there's this been this reframing that's been interesting that I've been talking about, which is like you hear people say, you know, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed. I had a psychiatrist that told me that repeatedly, which is funny because I wasn't thinking about shame, and I walked out thinking, oh, I guess I'm supposed to be ashamed. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it wasn't on my radar. Um, and sometimes when you hear people say, I'm not ashamed, it almost sounds like they're convincing themselves. But really when you reframe it, which to me wasn't intentional, I just really saw it this way, was that you can be really proud. And so for me, living with bipolar disorder is the thing I'm most proud of in life, but it's taken a long time to kind of get to that place of seeing it in a very different light. So that's the message kind of, you know, like we're trying to push in mental health now is like, 
not only is it normal and okay and common, but like it's something you could be proud of and there are incredible advantages that come with it. You know, people mm -hmm. with, uh, with depression have extraordinary rates of creativity and empathy. People with ADHD have incredible abilities and skills that I don't have. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of reflect on illness in a different way. We pathologize so many of these things, but there are also huge benefits and kind of a beauty that comes with it. And then beyond that, you know, not everybody knows what it's like to live with these things, but everybody knows what it's like to struggle. And we, when we can kind of talk about that universality of struggle and suffering and inadequacy and fear and insecurity, I think that's where we can really broaden the conversation in an effective way. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think you've hit the the climate de demographic easily <laughs> with all of those things you just said. So we pathologized it and stigmatized you know, mental illness. And it's just like a no-no to talk about and, and share. And is there, what's the, what's the, well, the one thing on that note, I'll just mention is one thing I mentioned in the film is like, I think that in some ways, alpinism can really mimic bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. It certainly has for me, but I feel like you are going into these extreme environments and you're ex experiencing these extreme emotions this extreme array of emotions and experiences that you won't get in, you know, normal life. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's so beautiful out there and so incredible. And you experience such a dopamine hit of the relief when things are okay, that like, it's almost transcendental, yeah. right? You have such an extreme experience. And on the other end, it's not just like sadness or disappointment you experience. It's like pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And and that's something, you know, I, I know what that's like to kind of, you know, go so far to the ends that you're standing there and you're looking over the cliff of, you know, when I'm experiencing all of these emotions. And I think in alpinism, you very much get to experience what those limits look like as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I asked you the first time, like, what drew you to alpinism and, and snow and ice kind of first? You know, I think I don't want to put a, a general blanket statement on everyone, but Usually the progression is maybe nowadays gym, rock, alpine environments. If you if you so choose, um, again, it's not for that's not the progression for everyone or just path for everyone. But you jumped right you, you jumped right into the deep end, kind of head first, and into the big mountain environment. And you know you're off to Alaska again for the how many times have you been have you been there now? Uh, this will be my sixth trip and fourth okay. into the range. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're leaving what here in a few days or something. So yeah. like. Yeah, and you're 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 addicted. You're obsessed, and it's just that's how you were like brought into climbing, as as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, is that I did yeah, it the wrong. Like, I did it the wrong way. It was like it the other I way around. Yeah, started on snow and ice, and then I, I, it's funny. Like I, I the gym is like the last. Like I, gym climbing to me is like kind of scary and and weird in its own way. And I have like very little experience with it. I'm trying to go more to spire here, but like yeah. yeah, it is funny. And and rock climbing. My first time rock climbing was, uh, you know, not an intense one, but it was an alpine climb in um, in Washington, and so you know, and then realizing, oh, like you can rock climb in these environments that are a little bit more less remote, which is really nice and awesome. And like, oh, my approach can be across the street. Like this is awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is what type two type one fun is, you know, it's right, like, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. And I think, yeah, I was going to ask, like, if you were, you know, attracted to bouldering, would that like still like satisfy? Because I think with the 
you know, the disorder and alpinism, like we've been talking about, they, they go hand in hand, so to speak. And I mean, you have another quote that I wanted to share from the movie is if I didn't have this disorder, I wouldn't climb mountains or have gone to the white house. So they, they connect really well for you. Like with something closer to the ground and more controlled environment, would that, would that satisfy like where, where you are mentally? Well, you know, I have, yeah, no, absolutely. I have so much reverence for boulderers because it's like a skill set I just do not have. And, you know, I love it when friends bring me and I I can like struggle around on them and then like nap in the forest while they climb. <laughs> it's like bouldering is so fun for other reasons. It's and, and just like the problem solving aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it's something I, I'm so bad at and have so little experience with, but I think it's awesome in its own way. It just feels so divorced from the type of climbing I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's certainly not to say that it's not something I want to do more of, or, you know, okay. should, should do more of. And I, you know, I think I definitely need to become a more well-rounded climber. I think I definitely have deficits on rock that, you know, create more risk for me in places like Alaska and, you know, the terrain, a lot of the climbs are a lot more mixed lately. Um, my friends were like using their hands in April on some of those routes. And so it's like having, you know, a solid skill set in all these disciplines is really valuable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that was not to throw shade at bouldering boulders at all. I yeah, yeah. Boulders. No, I know. Yeah. I do it all the time. Like I was just trying to, yeah, compare like the spectrum of climbing, like, you know, something really big and tall and mountainous to something, you know, a little bit more controlled and just smaller, I guess, just on a spatial kind of scale. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. If like, there's not ice on it, I get really nervous. <laughs> so it's just like, I, it's just like being, I, I did it wrong, you know? <laughs> there's no ice on it. I get nervous. Said no one ever except Molly. <laughs> I feel like a lot of Bozeman climbers maybe would agree. It's like, what do you think? You know, it's next level. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, you've mentioned the White House a couple times, and um, we're kind of like going to the end with the most recent happenings with the film. So I want to take it back more towards the sure. beginning and your time in the White House, because and that is a pretty big claim to fame. And I want to yeah jump into that a bit. You worked at the White House during the Obama administration. And why don't you tell us some more about what your position was and just your experience working there? Yeah, I was a climate advisor um, for it was the Domestic Policy Council. We were working on energy and climate. So both of those were together um, back then. And, uh, you know, it was a really interesting time to be there. We were facing a lot of obstruction with Congress. And so we were actually, you know, the lesson for me and how limited you are and what you can do, even at the executive level without Congress. Um, and so we had limitations and we had to do everything via executive action, which means it has the full force of law, but it is not law. And it's very vulnerable. And that means that the next president can come and change everything. And that's what we saw. So, it, you know, we're working on domestic climate mitigation policy and then using that as leverage in order for um, the strategic negotiators to negotiate the Paris Climate Agreement to say, this is how much we're doing in the U.S. domestically. We need everybody to act together. You know, the, the only solution is a global solution. So it was a really interesting time to be there. It was the most intense experience of my life, uh, for sure, by far. Uh, much more than anything I've experienced in the mountains. It was like, you know, just the degree of sleep deprivation and the impacts that has on the health of all the young people. It's funny, like, you hear a lot about um, rapid aging of the president, but a lot of people don't know there's rapid aging of the staff. Um, and staff experience rapid aging. And I remember my intern 
coming in and him walking through the hallways and he comes back and he just said, there are 23 year olds that don't look 23. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yep, that, that is the environment here. Meanwhile, I'm going to sleep on the couch here tonight. That's where I'll be. Um, but it was a riveting experience and like the you know greatest honor of my life to be able to serve the American people in that capacity. So I, I wouldn't give it up for anything. But at the time, you know, living in DC, I felt I had this dream of climbing in Alaska that was dying because, you know, I wasn't being, I wasn't able to focus both on where I was living, but also just the intensity of the job that there was no space for anything else. Um, so I really wasn't able to pursue climbing and um, be gaining and working on those skills that I needed to be able to pursue a dream like climbing in Alaska. And I just felt like, it was decades away for me to ever be able to do something like that. And and one thing that was really interesting is that your dreams can be so much closer and within reach than you think they can be. If you kind of just tell yourself they are, that was one thing I experienced. It was like, you know, it, it, it blew my mind that I was in Alaska by the time I was, you know, in my 30s, my early 30s, when I thought I wouldn't get there for a long time. And I think, you know, a lot of much better climbers know, you know, there's, there can be a much faster trajectory. Um, But for me, it just felt impossible and distant. And the dream was so extreme. I I had like anxiety about it every day. And I think a lot of people know what it's like to have a dream so big, it scares you. Um, But I think that's okay, right? It's okay to kind of embrace that anxiety and fear and to go after it anyway, knowing it might not turn out, but it'll probably still get you to a better place than you would have otherwise. Yeah. Those are the kinds of dreams you want. I mean, the ones that scare the shit out of you and people, yeah, won't, won't, you know, don't believe in them except yourself. Yeah. Um, Very inspiring. (laughs) What was the, what was the time frame? What years you're, I mean, we know like the years Obama was in the White House, but what years were you there? And then sounds like you're already climbing when you worked there. And how long was it before you ended up in Alaska after you were done there? Yeah, I'd gotten into like mountaineering, non-technical mountaineering, really, um, which I didn't even know was part of climbing, which is like so funny to look back on. Uh, <laughs> but I had seen like photos of mountaineers and and documentaries, and I was just like, "That's so cool! What are you? Why do they have those ropes between them as they walk around the glacier? And like, what are these colorful things that are hanging from their heart? Like, it just blew my mind. And it's so funny to look back at just kind of that like fan fan feeling um where you know i i eventually got really bored of mountaineering and wanted to climb steeper stuff and was like what is the skill i need okay that's ice climbing that's a huge deficit for me i'm really bad at that um so that was my time in dc was uh really just we had one week in august when congress was in recess and i would use that to you know i'd save my money and like literally eat like beans for dinner and find free food in the city and then um, saved money and then would go out there um, for a week and climb as much as I could and then just come back. And I lived off that for the rest of the year. It was really like, that was all I got. And it was, it was great, but it like was killing me inside. And sometimes it was like 3am at the office and I'd look around and just be like, oh my God, I wish I could see the Cascades right now. And that's really where I learned. I'd learned in Washington and climbed a little bit in BC, but it wasn't until, you know, that film, the film came out, which was in 2021 that I went to uh, 
Alaska, the Alaska range. And that was specifically that dream I had had. Um, I'd done like a trip in the Wrangell St. Elias, which scared the hell out of me. Um, But the Alaska range was, you know, that's the Alaska you see in photos. And that's the Alaska you think about when you hear about Alaska. So going there for the first time was incredible because it was exactly what I thought it would be. Awesome. That's like, that's the Ruth Gorge. We're on the Cahiltna that on that trip. Yeah, I'll be heading okay. to the Ruth this time around. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I mean that's those rock. Yeah, I don't have a, a huge aspiration to you know to go there, but I mean I appreciate I very much appreciate that terrain and the people who do want to go and and experience that. It's it's remarkable. Well, it's so relative because for me, like the stuff you climb is so cool and distant <laughs> from like what I could do. So it's, it's funny. I mean, it's just like all relative for, you know, what yeah. you know is what you know and what you don't know is like incredible and cool. And I am yeah. all for it and reverence for it in different ways. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. The law of relative relativity, right? It's, <laughs> it exists in everything. Everything's relative to, was that, was that Einstein, I think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it sounds like you, yeah, you definitely capitalized on the uh, urban dirt bag uh, lifestyle there. You know, you weren't like living in the woods in a tent or something. You pulled it off in the city. <laughs> yeah, people thought I was so weird at work. They're like, you know, if they have time off, they're going to go to somewhere tropical if they can or, you know, out west. But I, they were like, where are you going? And what is this stuff you have? And I wouldn't even show photos because it it scared people. And, you know, a lot of times people think climbing is irresponsible if they don't know much about it and they don't know how it works. And um, and so I, I didn't really show it, but I they just kind of knew I liked this climbing thing. Um, and, you know, there is sport climbing in the mid-Atlantic. And so like some of the sport climbers were like, oh, like that's cool. I know that. And the, But it, it's just, it, it was interesting. There was just such a disconnect between my worlds and, and my dream of climbing out there and where I was living. And, you know, I would have a, I trained with a pack at the gym because DC is so flat. So I, I only really had a treadmill or the stair stepper at a gym and just walking around downtown to get to the gym with like a huge backpack full of like gallons of water was just like so weird to people. <laughs> or even when I lived in San Francisco, it was like, you know, you don't have a ton of access to ice. There is some, but it's just like harder to get to, um, especially over like a weekend. And so a lot of what you do is just train at the gym. <clears throat> and I remember once like walking to the gym with my ice tool slung and um it was like only a two block walk so i didn't think it was that weird uh and i remember this woman pulling her kid in because like i just looked like dangerous with like these weapons (laughs) even at the gym you know and like people like think that's so weird in california they're like what what do you have even at the climbing gym it's just like why would you do that we have amazing rock in yosemite and i'm like honestly I don't have a good answer. <laughs> not what I'm inspired by right now. That's totally fine. Are you from Washington originally? I'm from uh, Northern California. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. I couldn't remember. Well, let's get into kind of the the meat of things here a bit and talk about like your approach and reframing of climate change communication. I think that's what's really sets you apart from everyone else and why you're making pretty big waves in the pool right now is because of your approach, which is explained in the film. Um, But I think we can dive a little bit deeper here. And, you know, you stood out as a climber and a climate activist due to this approach and, and reframing it to make it more relatable. 
to more people to the common person, right? Because it's it's kind of an exclusive thing. It can be exclusive, and it's it takes away it takes some attention away from people. Your approach does. Uh, it takes away the attention from people feeling guilty into having to buy the latest and greatest technology, for example, or drive the hybrid car. All good things if you can swing it, right? But most of us probably, I don't know if it's the majority or not, but I'll just go with most of us can't. Mm -hmm. So why don't we get into how you leverage uh, psychology and neuroscience, neuroscience to get people on board with climate action? Like when did that light bulb go off for you? Yeah. And it was a clear moment. So it was in, uh, you know, we all know what it's like to have a realization on something we should have realized way earlier. <laughs> we all know what that's like, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, one of those moments came in 2015. And I was sitting at my desk at the White House, and it just hit me super suddenly that we could keep trying to do everything we could on climate and policy, but we would always be limited if we didn't have overwhelming support from the American people and those who represent them. And that was getting at the Congress, like the obstruction we were facing there. So my theory of change started to evolve, where I know that you can't solve the climate crisis without systemic change, structural change, broad change that affects everybody. That's what we need. That's how you solve a crisis, right? And that's what. And you can't get systemic change without policy. That's what we were working on. And you can't get policy without having the electeds. That's what we were challenged with at the time. And you can't get the electeds without having the American people on board. And here was the realization. You can't expect to have the people on board until they feel something. And that last part, that people need to feel something in order to act, that was key. I felt really dumb in that moment. And I just realized that kind of by transitive property, policy and systemic change can come down to a human emotion. And the idea that how people feel can impact what we were able to do in the halls of the White House in good ways and in bad ways. So I started actually looking into psychology research, which is not what policy folks are usually looking at. And one thing was very clear, which is that fear, guilt, and shame is antithetical to human motivation. So the impact of shame has on the body is that it makes you physically retract, you take up less physical space, and you freeze. It has a paralyzing response. This is a trauma response. So we've been making people feel doom and gloom, shame and guilt about climate, and then saying, why aren't you acting? Any psychologist that knows this research could have told you, you are taking away their ability to act. So one. Why are we leading with this? Why are people feeling guilt and shame? Why are we trying to use that to motivate people into action? We do see this in the climbing community. You see people when folks are taking a stance and they're trying to advocate for climate action because they care about it and they get attacked by folks. You see it on Instagram in the comments for the fact that they're called climate hypocrites. I think this is incredibly concerning because it's gatekeeping the environmental movement. We want more people on climate, regardless. We need everybody. And the more we alienate people and tell them you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. When people are told they're getting around wrong, they're eating wrong, they're living wrong, that they have to change all of that to be a good person, you're just going to lose voters. 
we need all the voters we can get, right? So like one, it's just like the people who are shaming other people, I kind of question, are you really doing much to cut greenhouse gas emissions in the US? Like, are we actually fighting climate change in a way that's truly impactful or effective by doing that? What was really interesting is that on the other side, hope is very compelling. It's not just something that feels good. It's effective. And a lot of this research is coming out of ASU and the University of Oklahoma, the science of hope. Chan Hellman is like an incredible researcher who's like worked a lot in this space. Children who experience childhood trauma but have increasing rates on a hope scale experience way better life outcomes. You can predict much better life outcomes for them. Surgery patients who have increasing rates on the hope scale recover physically significantly faster. It's in fact, one of the predictors of longevity, how long you live is how much hope you have. Mm. And so that folks know what this is, they kind of distinguish optimism and hope in psychology. Optimism is your belief that the future can be better, right? You can just see a better future. But hope is specifically your belief in your ability to change it. Hope is powerful and effective. So when I started looking at this and realizing we can actually use it as a strategy, I looked around at the narratives we had and I was like, where is it? Why aren't we talking more about the fact that climate change is solvable? That if you look at climate change from the perspective of the problem specifically, and that's what I was working on in climate mitigation, if you look at it from the perspective of the problem, there's an end point. There's a promised land. It's the zero carbon economy of the future. And the best part is that we're well on our way. Now, that specifically means we need way more help. We need everybody on board. And that is looking face first at the urgency and the emergency of the issue. In no way does that dismiss or minimize that. In fact, it's looking at it head on, right? But the more we can integrate more people to get on board, the more we can get to that promised land faster. But showing people that there was a destination and an endpoint is really important. So when you look at it from the perspective of adaptation resilience, that's harder. And that's every climate documentary you've ever seen is about climate-related disasters. The stock footage is amazing, showing wildfires and hurricanes and droughts. The stories are really effective. There's like a beginning, middle, and end when you can talk about that. Um, the problem, though, is you lead to, it leads to these really localized narratives that aren't getting at the universality of the issue and the fact that this affects everybody. Mm-hmm. And that there's something horrific about that and scary about that, but also such an incredible opportunity that comes with that, right? The clean energy economy is everything. And when we address climate change, we improve everybody's quality of life, Mm -hmm. right? You address racial, social, economic injustice. You clean up the air for communities that can't breathe, which are typically communities of color, You improve public health significantly when you change the system from being one based in fossil fuels. You unleash incredible technological innovation. People are put back to work. We invest in communities that have been left behind. So many good things happen to society when we address climate change at large. So it's an incredibly hopeful narrative. It's an incredibly hopeful process, an incredibly hopeful issue. And I've gotten to see that in real time. And what we need is for everybody else to be able to see that too. I mean, everything you just said is it's you've turned it into a like I've heard you say it before, but you've turned it into a, a public health matter. Mm-hmm. Like who who doesn't care about public health, whether it be yourself or your neighbor, right? So if you can 
direct the narrative under a this public health umbrella rather than this doom and gloom uh, polar bear standing on a, you know a little tiny iceberg kind of thing. Mm-hmm. More relatable, right? And I was curious, like what the the antonym of fear, shame, and guilt was. I mean, and you said it, hope. Now I got so many questions coming out of this, but is first one is, do you feel like optimism is fleeting and hope is like a little bit more concrete in what you really need? It's like kind of the next step beyond optimism to really move forward. I mean, it seems like it's, it's, it's all up here, right? It's like so much of it is, uh, it is mental. It's like, it's a, it's a mental game. You know, we're all used to that. And sorry, I'm trying to go off on tangents, but like, is, 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 yeah, is, is hope the next thing beyond optimism? Absolutely. So, so hope is specifically you have control to create that better future. It's not just like you hope it's going to turn out well. Mm-hmm. It's saying I can make it well. Yeah. And yeah. when people are given that sense of control back, that sense of autonomy, that is powerful. That's incredible. Um, and, and you're hitting at something so spot on, which is the public health narrative. And we actually did message testing at the White House because we were like, we need to figure out the best way to talk about climate change to the American people. What is it? We don't know. And we found something really crazy. It's really interesting, which is that when we tested the national security frame, right, those climate-related disasters, that's, um, you know, FEMA response, flood standards, um, showing, you know, shots of hurricanes and wildfires, we actually found that it's not very effective. It's, again, a localized narrative, um, and it scares the hell out of people. And again, while we think you can scare people into action, psychology is kind of debunking that. So again, it's like, it's an important narrative that's out there to show, talk about the science and and the realities, but at the same time, just like scaring people with images, is not an effective way to motivate them. And we care about what's effective. Right. We tested the economic frame. Now at a macro level, that's saying that for every decade, you don't fight climate change. It's going to cost our economy this much more. We also found that there were limits in that because at a macro level, it was just too abstract for people to understand. When we talk about it in terms of people's livelihood and their jobs, that's a little more effective. But the macro economy narrative was not. We tested the environmental frame, which is the one you mentioned, right? Polar bears in the Arctic, melting glaciers. This is not effective because of this. In America, we have tremendous income inequality. And a mom working two jobs doesn't have the luxury of caring about things happening thousands and thousands of miles away. A lot of families are making very real decisions on whether they can afford rent or groceries. Asking somebody like that to care about polar bears is not realistic. So the most effective way to talk about climate change we found was through the lens of public health, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? This is really where climate change becomes climate justice. People throw that term around all the time, but it means something very specific. Communities of color in America are significantly likelier to have to live near things like polluting power plants, highways, toxic waste sites, refineries. And this has huge impacts on their health. Right. They have some of the highest childhood asthma rates in the country, increased hospitalization rates, increased rates of cancer, lung disease, heart disease, miscarriage, impacts to male fertility. The list goes on. A lot of folks know what it's like 
to live near some polluting entity. And if you think about air, the ability to breathe, what could be more of a human right? Right now, that's a luxury in America. The more we can change the system, the more those things will improve. I go into rooms of people who vote very differently from me. And when you talk about climate change, it's like they hear you, but they're not really there. When you talk about public health, they're on board. In fact, they're fans of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, when we can frame it in terms of public health and clean air and clean water, everybody starts caring. Because like you said, there's not a person out there that doesn't care about the health and well-being of their children. It transcends politics. No matter where you are in the political spectrum, Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, climate activist, climate skeptic, even though there aren't that many of those, um, there's not a person out there that's not on board with clean air that wants more pollution in their communities, more of a hospitalization rate, increased rates of heart disease and lung disease, right? Like you, It's going to be really hard pressed to find somebody who's going to be advocating for those things, who wants more of that. It's a very effective way to talk about climate. The more we can reframe in terms of public health, and we are doing that more and more, the more people get on board. And that's what we need. How have you seen things improve or or not since your time at the White House and having this light bulb go off? Have you felt encouraged since 2015? Yeah, I mean, the Biden administration is doing an amazing job in framing climate as a public health issue. Um, the American Medical Association, the American Lung Association, those are groups that like are ahead on climate. And that's what we want. We want groups like that to be leading on climate, not just environmental organizations, because the public health narrative is really, really powerful. But we have to talk more about clean air and clean water in order to get more people on board. I think that's very, very important at this time. Yeah. And we know it's effective. It's actually been additionally backed by academic research as well. I believe it. Yeah. And I don't want to like beat a dead horse here or bring up something that's been talked about so much. And, but like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's something we've, a lot of us have heard of. And I, I first learned about it many, many years ago. And I don't want it to, yeah, to be like a, this repetitive thing. Like, I don't know, some, some terms in the environmental world get tossed around a lot and they've kind of lost their steam a little bit. Like I think sustainability is, you know, has lost its steam over the years a little bit. It's just my personal opinion, but um, yeah, the Maslow's thing, it's just like the, what's at the base of the pyramid. It's the physiological needs of a human and mm -hmm. what is listed in there. It's air, water, shelter, food. Like if you can't satisfy the bottom, self-actualization at the top is not going to be met right so exactly i mean it just it just makes sense what you're talking about and i don't know who could argue that yeah i mean it's a matter of thinking in terms of privilege right and and we have tremendous income inequality in this country you know a lot of people who live in salt lake city tons of climbers live there they know what it's like to breathe dirty air that, that has a tremendous impact on your quality of life you can't go outside you can't exercise it has impacts on your mood on your ability to concentrate and focus it's really problematic. And also, regardless of fossil fuels, more and more folks in the West are knowing what it's like to breathe dirty air because of wildfires. Yeah. I mean, it's wildfire pollution. That's really what's happening. And we know what that's like. It's oppressive. So it's really something we want to get in front of in terms of that narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. And with the passing with the, of the Inflation Reduction Act, we saw an example of systemic change making the impact that we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's affecting 
us as climbers and well, well beyond, you know, it's affecting, you know, everyone in, in America, right? So let's discuss that piece of legislation a little bit more because, I mean, the, the title does not indicate that there's all this climate action attached to it and in, in written in there, right? But it has wide, wide reaching benefits and, and impacts on climate action, right? So um, could you give us some more details mm-hmm. on, on what's included in this legislation? Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, was passed a few months ago and is the most consequential piece of climate legislation or action any time in history, anywhere in the world, by any nation. It is a huge, huge deal, and it's going to lead to a 40% net cut in emissions above 1990 levels. I mean, it's to the point where the future world we will live in and our children will live in will have a higher quality of life because of it. It will look different because of it. Now it's a starting point. We need continued legislation and laws like this that are going to continue to accelerate our transition to a cleaner energy economy, um, that are going to continue to accelerate decarbonization and electrification. But this is a, a really, really big deal. And it's also going to revitalize a lot of communities. There are a lot of provisions in there for um, projects to be in communities that have really been left behind. It's a really big deal. And so when we think about systemic change versus kind of the limits of greening your life, systemic change, we can all as individuals have a huge impact there. And that's why when people ask me, what can I do? It's my favorite question because I'm like, there is a really, really impactful thing you can do. And it's to get involved in helping us win elections. The number one way for us to fight climate change is to win elections, get those people in office so we can get policy. In fact, it's like so obvious in some ways, and yet it's not the climate elections nexus is like not super delineated. And so there's a really good group called the Environmental Voter Project that I've been championing because I think they're the answer to the climate crisis, environmentalvoter.org. And they basically use super impressive analytics in order to identify environmentalists who don't vote. Now, I didn't think these people existed. When I first heard about it, I was like, no. And they showed me the data and I was like, oh my God, so many environmentalists don't vote. So how do you get them to vote? They use behavioral science. Everything is very proven. They test everything. And it can be as simple as calling somebody and reminding them it's election day. Calling somebody and making sure they know where their polling place is making sure they have a plan to vote, sending them a postcard, texting them. It's so simple. And yet it's not. Like how we win elections is we increase turnout. So they are better at this than anybody else and um, a very effective group to get involved in, I believe. Like this is, I believe, one of the number one things you can do to help fight climate change. We really need to focus on the systemic side, structural change that's going to help everybody. Because again, There are limits in what we can do to green our lives that have an impact on everybody. Now, if anybody has the time, energy, resources, and privilege of being able to green their lives, I commend them. Keep doing it. That's awesome. But really, I want us to reframe action and solving, emphasis on solving the climate crisis with systemic climate action. The the, uh, IRA, for short, I'll say the full thing. Inflation Reduction Reduction Act. Is it more in the camp of mitigation or adaptation? Mitigation. Well, there's both in there, but mitigation is a big thing. Yeah. To clarify, so adaptation, these are two aspects of policy. 
Adaptation and resilience is focusing on the addressing the impacts of climate change that are here and on the way, right? Flood standards, FEMA response. It's a lot of stuff related to disaster response and becoming more resilient and rebuilding back better. Mitigation is specifically focused on solving the problem of climate change, the sources of the issue, right? Our transportation, electricity systems, parts of industry, all can be addressed through decarbonization and electrification. So it's looking at policies that are going to change basically how our society is run. They're going to change the entire system, which is what we need in order to solve the sources of the problem. Now, both of these are super, super important areas of policy. One thing to note is that in terms of a mainstream narrative, one is way more effective than the other. I have friends who work in the adaptation and resilience space, and they're like, let me do my job. Stop using our narrative. Stop making films about it. Stop talking about it. Let me just do my job because they're saving lives. Um, because the more you talk about climate-related disasters in terms of doom and gloom, the less people want to get involved. Now, imagine this. Imagine you're sitting on a couch and somebody walks in and they're like, hey, we have a huge problem, a crisis, and we're really too late, and there's not much we can do, and you're powerless. And by the way, it's your fault, and you should feel bad about that. But will you help me? How inclined are you to get involved, right? Now imagine this. You're sitting on the couch. Somebody walks in, and they say this. Hey, we have a huge problem, a crisis, but we have the solutions, and we have the ability and the energy to get it done. And we have huge momentum to get there. And there's an end point where we're going to. And we need you. You can help. Will you help me? How do you respond? There's your narrative, right? That's showing like, what do you do to get people involved, to get motivated, to, to help us win elections, to support policies like the IRA? You motivate them by showing them there's an endpoint, that there's momentum, that there's hope. We need to lead with that. And again, I want to make clear, hope goes alongside recognizing the urgency and the gravity of the problem. That's part of it. Crises historically are where people come together and step up to create change. And again, in the process, tend to improve a lot of other things in society. A crisis can be a huge opportunity and moment for us to grasp. That's what we want to lead with. You see that in, in like wartime. I, I can't remember exactly. what book it was, but I, I remember reading that in a book like in high school or something like, uh, you know, villages across um, towns across Europe, like during World War II were it was tight. People were tight knit and coming together over something they had in common. We're fighting, you know, fighting this war. And after, you know, September 11th, 2001, same thing, the country really bonded over something. And is this on the same playing field as that? I mean, I would hope so. And it, I, th I still think it's got some, some way to go to, to get there. Yeah. Crises are an opportunity to step up. For all of us. And, and what I want to make clear is that, you know, if, if a lot of people care about the environment and climate, but they've never identified as an environmentalist. In fact, I'm one of them. The environmental movement has a lot of challenges and issues it's had that's turned off a lot of people. And they're valid, I believe. 
So what we need to do is make everybody know that in the climate movement, you are not only welcome, there is a place that's been waiting for you in this fight. Everybody is welcome. I don't care what you eat, what you drive. You are welcome in the climate movement because we need everybody. We cannot keep kicking people out, holding them out. We need them all. And the more we can spread that message of inclusivity and belonging, the more people will want to get involved. You know, one thing we say now is be a climate voter. We don't say vote or vote for the climate. When you say be a climate voter, you actually increase turnout more because you're creating an identity that people can be a part of, a sense of belonging. People want to identify with that. That's the opportunity here is like people, we can create a sense of belonging for people. And to do that, we really need to focus on reframing effectively. And that's another thing we can get into on, on how to reframe. Let's go. Let's give you some steps here. <laughs> give me some steps. All right. Um, so we'll start with a study that was done in the 80s, a psychology study. Uh, it's been replicated a lot, very well documented. So I'm going to replicate it with you. Okay. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Okay. Here's the instruction. Don't think about a white bear. What are you thinking about? The bear on the iceberg. <laughs> white bear, right? Yeah. So this is what I do this with big audiences. Everyone raises their hand. You weren't thinking about a white bear before. I told you not to think about it, but I said, do not think about it. Did it matter? Now, this seems really obvious, but what it's really showing is that thought suppression is very difficult. When you tell something, somebody not to think about it, they are likelier to think about it. Um, it's called the white bear problem. Now imagine you're sitting on a park bench and some stranger walks up to you and they say this, don't be embarrassed about your outfit. How do you feel? Like, what are you thinking about? Right? What do you, looking, they said, you won't be I'm embarrassed hearing. about your outfit, but did it matter? Yeah. <laughs> when we say don't, doesn't, isn't, it has a negligible impact. And the reason is because of this. When you have a thought in your brain, it's firing a web of neurons. And you, when you have that thought again, it fires that web of neurons again, and that web grows stronger. And now that thought is likelier to arise. When you say doesn't, it's still wiring those things together. So what we need to do is reframe, and that's largely based on the work of George Lakoff, cognitive linguist, was at UC Berkeley for decades, a brilliant mind in this space. Reframing is where you take somebody, something somebody is saying, and you just entirely put it into a new space. So this is why it's effective. We need to think about how language matters. It has a huge impact and how this is the basis for the narratives we're going to create. And the other part of that is the more we can lead with hope within these frames, opportunity, feasibility, momentum, the more people will pay attention. So another aspect, another framing that is very effective is the moral obligation frame, which is talking about children and future generations. I don't have kids. I don't plan to have kids, but like I talk about children all the time, our children, for that reason. It's just effective. So um, people like public health and they like thinking about the future for everybody else, which is incredible. That's extraordinary that that's effective for people, that it's not just about us. Um, so anyway, those are two frames that are very effective for us to be thinking about and framing into. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, when you're talking about the, the you know, the, the neurons wiring and firing together, you know, it's a nice 
nice phrase that goes along with that. And I've heard that a bunch in like sports psychology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, saying you can't do something or, you know, don't do this or don't do that while you're climbing. And what do you end up doing? Fumbling, whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting concept. And, I've, you know, I've, you don't hear it that much in in this field until now. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, I think, largely, you know, it's due to the work you've done, you know, over the last eight, 10 years. And that's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's like we need to harness evidence-based strategies that we have. And there's incredible research that comes out of psychology that lives and dies in academia. Why? Why? We know how the human brain and mind, the human body, brain and mind work together. We know a lot of these things. So why aren't we harnessing it? Because if you look at that research, we're doing everything wrong. We need to be thinking about what's effective here in order to create effective systemic change. And that's like what I really want us to be focusing more on. So what are you, what are you doing for work now? How, how are you taking what you took from the, um, from the White House and just over the last several years? How are you implementing that now in your personal work? Yeah, so my uh, consulting firm, Systemic Impact Strategies, is actually focused on helping organizations and companies reframe from their carbon footprint in terms of thinking about systemic change. For us to be able to do that, uh, it can look like a lot of things. And so we're working on getting companies to reframe as well in terms of like helping everybody in some way, basically using their platform to help climate rather than change the light bulbs in their stores, which again is great, but can also have a minimal impact when you think of that versus like helping get policies passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm doing there. And then quite a bit of public speaking now and talking about climate and mental health advocacy with lots of different groups from corporate audiences to activists to just the general public. So that's been a lot of fun. Love it, Molly. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for all your work and everything you're doing. And it's so, <clears throat> so relatable to, uh, other climbers, including myself. And I think this, you know, your, your film showed that so well. <laughs> yeah, it was at one point the director turned around and he looked at me and he was like, you know, the theme of your life is hope, right? And I was like, oh, no, but you're right. Like I hadn't even, you know, those moments where somebody gives you huge insight into yourself that you'd never considered, mm-hmm. you know, from having a mental illness to climbing, it's like you have to believe you can do things that don't seem feasible. Right. And in climate, that's absolutely the case too. But climbers are really good at that. You're really good at taking on objectives that, you know, you're just like, there's no way, but whatever. Let's see how high we get. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a really effective frame for climate and everything else in mental health and just every sector of life. Hope is effective. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as twenty bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits. With first getting a free T-shirt and 
getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org. So check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way. And I'd greatly appreciate if you helped me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.